Uh, folks, welcome again uh, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, now, we get on the air uh, because of the engineering genius uh, of Alan Dempsey. He's, uh, he's marvelous. He gets us on the air. Andrew Herdliska produces the show. And uh, Mark Verkler is our guest. Uh, the book is called Overflow of the Spirit, uh, How to Release His Gifts in Every Area of Your Life. Uh, Mark is... Uh, uh, out in the Lake Nona area. And uh, first of all, Mark, welcome to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. How are you doing these days? Uh, what's the background here on your book? Well, it's uh, it's uh, something I've hungered for pretty much all of my Christian life. I, you know, I became spirit-filled maybe 40 years ago and, and saw that, you know, in the New Testament they did miracles, did healing, had words of wisdom, words of knowledge, Prophecy, discerning of spirits, cast out demons, heal the sick, and and those are the nine manifestations of the spirit. And so I really hungered for that, and had no idea, no idea at all, how in the world a person would possibly move into operating in those nine manifestations of spirits. So it's taken me forty years to come to a point where I felt I could actually write a book that could explain, hey, this is all very possible, and it's actually all very easy, and every single one can, every single spirit-filled Christian can actually do it. Mark, I wanted you to um, just explain uh, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who uh, seems to be the least prominent or the most forgotten, but yet uh, right right there uh, on equal footing. Uh, why is it so hard for us to really grasp the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, I totally agree with you. The Holy Spirit has been neglected uh, tremendously. I mean, even the Apostles' Creed, you know, all it says about the Holy Spirit is we believe in the Holy Spirit. And, I mean, it said a lot more than that about the Father, and it said a ton about the Son, and it gives gives six words to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if people think that's a creed to live out of, then then that really minimizes the Holy Spirit. But, But the Apostles' Creed is not a creed to live out of. It's they were, re- they were reacting to a heresy about who Jesus was, so they spent most of the creed defining who Jesus was, and, and they, weren't, they weren't trying to address the Holy Spirit. And, and in the Protestant um, <clears throat> Reformation, we still didn't address the Holy Spirit. It, it still got minimized by, by Martin Luther, um, because there was kind of a need to minimize the authority of the Pope, because he could actually hear the voice of God and speak for God, and, and Protestants didn't want him to have that much authority, so they just minimized hearing from God, and the role of the Holy Spirit. So right from day one till today, the Holy Spirit's been minimized. And when you come to the New Testament and look, I mean, I looked up, I've got a list in the book of 70 things the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Mm. And, and they're not small. I mean, they are, they are everything flows from the Holy Spirit. The New Testament's crystal clear about that. Uh, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Um, this is Jesus talking, okay? Um, the Spirit is the sanctifying power within me. It's, a, it's a, the work of the Holy Spirit that it gives me the power to overcome the flesh in my life. And when I go to war, I war with the sword of the Spirit. You know? And, I mean, the, the list, I mean, that's, that's what, four or five from the list. And, and when you come to the first altar call that was ever given, Acts 2.38, Peter gets done preaching, he says... It says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you're going to, you're going to do what? You know, if that was an altar call today, we would say, you're going to get to go to heaven. But that's not what Peter said. Peter says, and you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I said, really, Peter? I said, hey, the punchline to an evangelistic sermon is, you get to go to heaven. But he thought the punchline to evangelism was, you get the Holy Spirit. So his focus was completely different from our focus today. Mark, and the Holy Spirit uh, was actually present at the start of the world, as I read the early part of Genesis. Am I right on that? Oh, you most certainly are. You know, he was there moving with the Father and the Son. It says together that they were creating the world. So Mm. he shows up in the book, you know, shows up in Genesis, and and you get to the book of Revelation at the other end of the Bible, and it's the Holy Spirit. Paul John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me saying, write in a book what you see. So we get 
22 chapters of a visionary encounter where he meets with angels, meets with the spirits in heaven, dialogues with them, writes out 22 chapters, and this was because he was in the spirit. He was tuned to the Holy Spirit who was joined to his spirit, and he wrote for 22 chapters what the spirit was giving him. And we can do that if we believe we can do that and know the steps to take to do that. I want you to teach us about spiritual gifts. Uh, some have more than others, I guess. How many spiritual gifts uh, should we focus on, or, do, or does that just become crystal clear? <laughs> well, that, that's a really tremendous question. You know, because uh, you know, in First Corinthians chapter twelve, Paul, Paul, you know, lists nine different manifestations of the Spirit: um, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, prophecy, miracles, healing, and uh, faith. You know, and so the question is, well, how many of those could a person have? You know, because it seems seems like Paul is saying there that one is given this, and to another is given this, and to another is given this. So we kind of under the assumption that you know we might not have them all, but but as I read through Paul's life in the New Testament, I found verses showing that he manifested eight of the nine himself. The only one the New Testament doesn't specifically mention is that he spoke in tongues, but, or that he, that he interpreted tongues, but, but he said, you know, I, that we should all interpret tongues, and the way he was talking surely indicated that he interpreted tongues. So, so he did at least eight of the nine, probably did nine of the nine, and when I looked up to see what Jesus did, he did seven of the nine, the only two it doesn't mention specifically is tongues and interpretation tongues. And, and so, so, yeah, we can have more than one. I mean, Paul's life, Jesus' life proves we can have the vast majority, if not all nine, because what we really have is the Holy Spirit living within us. And when the Bible says he manifests himself, well, he manifests himself, he shows himself out through us in any or all of these nine ways, depending on what the need of this, the moment is. If I'm out in the street and someone needs healing, well, then I can expect the manifestation of healing to flow out through me. Now, if I'm in a gathered church service and we got some other great prophets there around and other great people who can do healing, and you know, maybe I won't do all nine in the church service because I'll defer to those who may have more skill and more anointing just so we don't have bedlam in the service. But, but boy, when I'm out in the street, they're all available. And one of the chapters of our book, talks about is, is the stories, nine stories, of a public school teacher here in America who teaches in the public school system, and he manifests all nine manifestations in the public school system. And, and he shares nine stories of, of each of the nine different different ones being manifest. So, so yeah, uh, Paul did it. We can do it. We have stories of people doing it today. Um, I believe that all nine are available. And then, of course, that kind of raises a question, well, how come Paul said that, you know, one has this and one has that and one has the next? And, and as I read through that chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, he, you know, <clears throat> the chapter says, you know what, you guys used to worship idols. Uh, you're a worshiper of idols, and it's plural, idols. You know, they, uh, when you went to idolatry, you had a different god for every single thing, a sun, moon, a god, mood, a, a sun, moon, a star, moon, you know, a, There was a God for every different thing in your life. But in Christianity, it's the same God who does all of these nine things. And if you read that section in 1 Corinthians, you're going to find he says about eight or nine times, it's the same God. It's the same God. It's a word of wisdom, but it's the same God. It's a word of knowledge, but it's the same God. It's prophecy, but it's the same God. He says it over and over to to say to them, look, there's not a multiplicity of gods up there we're worshiping. It's one God. In three people, it's one God, and he can manifest himself in all of these nine ways through our lives. My guest is Mark Vickler. Vickler. You're in Orlando. Uh, the book is called Overflow of the Spirit. Uh, we've got another segment with Mark, so stay with us. Uh, and remember, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can be a big help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. And uh, check that out. Just register. Just say, yes, good idea. I want to be part of this. OrlandoDreamers.com. We've got more with Mark right after these messages. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new AM 990. 
and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. Author Mark Verkler is with us. We're talking about his book, Overflow of the Spirit. Uh, Mark, as president of the Christian Leadership University, uh, tell us more. Well, and my passion is to be an, an educator, a Christian educator, and so we have an internet university. Um, students uh, in 129 nations are taking courses with us, so anyone, anywhere, all of your listeners can check out the website, Christian Leadership University, just type that phrase in. Um, it'll give them the whole catalog. It'll give them over 100 courses available. Uh, we ship the course to your house, uh, or if it's electronic download, we can do it that way also. We uh, assign you an instructor to work with you. It's a great material. You can work towards a degree. We offer religious degrees in uh, 12 different areas, um, which are pretty unique areas. We do have Christian counseling, our most popular area, and we have Bible and theology, and we have prophetic. We have healing ministry. We have youth evangelism. We have missions. Uh, so uh, We have business, Christian leadership, business leadership. So 100 courses in um, 12 different concentration areas and degrees up through to the doctorate level. And we, uh, we're just passionate to teach people you can become a Christian leader by hearing the voice of God, uh, releasing the voice of God into the area of specialty or business or ministry God's ask you to function in, and through that become an anointed leader. What, what, what God says, you'll become the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. You will lend and not borrow. That's Deuteronomy 28. So when we're working in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, hearing his voice and living out of his voice, it takes us into leadership roles. Are leaders born or made, Mark? <laughs> well, I'm sure, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think uh, there's a call of a destiny on everybody's life. But, you know, first in um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, you know, he's, he says we all be, can become leaders. And, and I think in, in whatever area God has asked you to function in, you can become a leader in that area, whether you lead five or 500 or 5 million I think that's pretty irrelevant. God says, look, if you tune to the anointing of my spirit, you will function beyond your normal capacity. And when you do that, you you rise to a leadership role. So I think all of us uh, can rise to a leadership role in the areas that God has asked us to function in. Mark, what was that verse you just said from Deuteronomy? What, what, what was that? It's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, verses 1 to 14, and uh, verse 1 in the, in the King James Bible says, If you hear my voice, I will do this. And then he goes on and describes 14 verses of, of blessing, which include blessing your basket, blessing your kneading bowl, blessing your crops, blessing your family. And he ends by saying, I'll make you the head and not the tail. You will be above and not beneath, and you will lend and not borrow. So that's given to all of us, that, that promise. What is your position on journaling? <laughs> well, for me, uh, two-way journaling became the key that, that opened up the voice of God to me because I'd been a Christian for 10 years and couldn't, hear, couldn't identify God's voice because, first of all, I didn't know that his voice sounded like spontaneous, flowing thoughts that light up on my mind. And so the four keys that God finally taught me, which one was two-way journaling, the four keys that made this all work was you quiet myself down, number one, Number two, just fix my eyes on Jesus, just picture Jesus next to me like King David did. He said, I've set the Lord at my right hand. So picture the Lord right there at your right hand because he is Emmanuel, God with you. And key number three is recognize God's voice as spontaneous flowing thoughts. So you're tuned to flowing thoughts. You've got your eyes fixed on Jesus, tuned to flowing thoughts. And key number four is journaling, two-way journaling. You begin to write out the dialogue, the flow that you're having between you and God. You say, I normally say, good morning, Lord, I love you, what do you want to say to me today? And, and then I put a smile on my face, and I tune to flow, and I look at Jesus, and whatever flowing thoughts are coming, I just begin to write them out, journal them out, and I can get up half a page, page from the Lord every single morning, and so can every single Christian by doing those four keys. Mm. Go over those four again. Key number one is stillness. I quiet my mind. Key number two is vision. I fix my eyes on Jesus, standing here next to me, big smile on his face. <laughs> key number three is I recognize his voice as spontaneous flowing thoughts. And key number four is I begin to write the flow of thoughts as they come. 
And because I'm right in the face, the flow will continue. Because the thing that would cut off the flow is if I stopped to test it in the middle of it and say, hmm, is this really God? And if I stop to shit and shift from faith to doubt, then the receiver is jammed and I hang up on God and the flow ends. So if I'll decide to stay in faith for five or ten minutes and write from flow in faith for five or ten minutes, I will have five or ten minutes of God talking to me. Mm. And we can all have that every single morning. I want you to talk about dreams. Everybody dreams at night. Uh, is that all from God? <laughs> yeah, it says it, it is. Psalms uh, chapter, uh, oh, let's see, 16 verse 7, 7 I believe it is. He says, uh, <clears throat> I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my heart instructs me in the night. So mm. that verse clearly says God has given you counsel and instruction through your heart at night, which, of course, would be dreams. That's, that's what it would be. And the Bible has 50 dreams in it, starting in Genesis, ending with Revelation. And in all 50 dreams, God is speaking to them, giving them revelation, giving them guidance, giving them creativity, giving them insight for becoming a successful businessman. I mean, it's all there. You know, and, and one-third of the Bible is a stories of what people do as a result of the dreams that they receive, the wisdom and counsel they receive from God at night, and so, yeah, that's a biggie. You know, we, in, in our university, we offer a full course on Christian dream interpretation, taking you through all 50 of those dreams in the Bible, teaching you how to interpret symbolism properly so that you can hear what God is saying to you and then act on it. Because in the Bible, they all got up and acted on their dream. Every single one got up and acted on their dream. And, and I do that, and we teach people you should do that. Well, Mark, what do you think when, when I dream at night about uh, hitting a, a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning and my teammates are mobbing me, uh, sometimes I'll throw a 60-yard pass downfield and it's completed. Um, any chance of that happening in real life? Or, or, or should well, I and just enjoy my dreams? <laughs> um, dreams are symbolic in the Bible. So uh, at least 95% of the time they are. So you should assume that 95% of your dreams are symbolic. So I would try it on symbolically first and say, okay, where in my life today am I going for a long pass? And I'm a, we're not talking necessarily a long pass literally, but I am doing something that's really stretching me. I'm going the whole distance. And you know what? Mm. I'm going to win. I, I get, my heart is telling me this is going to be a winning move and it's going to move me forward because that's most likely what the dream is talking about. And if you ask that question and tune to flow in your journaling time, the Lord will pop into your mind spontaneously. This is the area where you are shooting for a long pass, and yes, I'm giving you victory here. Wow. Well, yeah. uh, Mark, uh, uh, the longest pass we've got going right now, uh, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. And, uh, you know, that that's uh, uh, the biggest reach that this community is going to take on maybe ever. So uh, maybe that ties to that uh, home run I hit the other night in my dream. So well, you, actually, you actually did have that dream, huh? Oh, yes. Oh, it was a shot, a line drive over the fence in left center field. And yep. uh, it felt good. I got a hold of it, really ripped it. Uh, well, I, I, would, I would concur that if that was the issue, that that's the issue you're pressing into right now, that dream is confirming to you this long shot is going to be a winner. Oh, boy. Well, Mark, thank you. Um, You're welcome. I'm, I'm curious. You know, you live in an area of Orlando that many of us never get to, Lake Nona. Uh, uh, what's going on out at Lake Nona? What, what do you want us to know? Uh, well, I want you to know that the construction never ceases. Uh, uh, we moved here eight years ago, and um, used to be farms and cows across the road from us, and they are all gone, and it's just jammed full of buildings and offices and a brand new school is going up right next to us. Uh, all the roads are under, under construction. It is mammoth growth beyond my wildest imagination. So will that be downtown Orlando one day or a second downtown? That is exactly the vision that the builders have, that they're going to make this a, a second downtown uh, Orlando, and they are building skyscrapers like 20, 34 stories up, and they're just finishing one off right now in, in the area which is going to be the center of this new downtown Orlando, which is very, very near the airport down here. So that's their goal. That's their plans. And I, it looks to me like they're going to accomplish that. That's fascinating. Mark, while we're chatting, um, what is your advice 
to someone who wants to really have a, a good plan of reading the Bible, but yet get frustrated, uh, do you have a good method of, uh, of being a consistent Bible reader or student of the Bible? Uh, yeah, we've, we've probably got some things. Uh, you know, what I have, one of the books that I've written um, is called Through the Bible, and it actually it charts all 60 books of the Bible, 66 books, and it gives you a chance to write in chapter titles as you're reading through them. And, uh, and and see how it relates to the overall theme of the book, you know. So you are co-creating that chart with me, and so you're, you're reading with purpose. You're reading with intention, which is very very important. And we also have discussion questions uh, every single week as you go along. So so again, you're reading with intentions, and 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 one of the discussion questions is always there. Lord, what are you speaking to me from this section of scripture? So reading with focus, reading with intention, reading to see the big picture and how what you're reading fits into it for me, is all very helpful in taking me through the Bible to get an overall view of Scripture. And, and, and I did that 10 or 20 times in my early Christian life. And now now in my later Christian life, I'm doing topical studies where where I say, well, my topic is I really want to understand how to hear God's voice, so I'm looking up every single verse in my concordance on hearing God's voice. Or I want to interpret dreams, so I'm looking up every single verse on dreams. So, so topical studies work good because, again, I have a passion. I have an interest. I have questions. And I really think when you go to the Bible, you should go with the passionate interest questions um, to, to resolve the issue that needs to be resolved so you can take a step forward in your Christian life. And if you do that and you have that passion, it makes it all interesting and fun instead of just kind of boring. Where do you encourage people to start what book? Well, I think the best place to start would be the New Testament. So, you know, I think I'd just start with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go through them, you know, and, and just soak up the life of Jesus, because that's the life we're supposed to live. He is, we imitate Christ, is what the New Testament says. So, so that's a picture of what I want to become and the way I want to function as I walk the streets of Orlando, okay? And we can, we can all function that way, because he's given us the Holy Spirit to do the same things that Jesus did, because Jesus did the things he did by the Holy Spirit. I'd start with that, and then I'd move on through the you know, Acts and the rest of the New Testament is what I would do. Tell me your position on uh, memorizing Scripture. I love to memorize Scripture, and the verses that I memorize are the ones that leap off the page. when I'm, you know, Here I am reading along, and all of a sudden the verse just hits me between the eyes, which means that's God speaking to me, saying, Mark, this verse is crucial for you to own right now. Um, and so I write it out on a three-by-five card, I carry it with me, I, I look at it, I put it in the mirror so I can read it and review it, I carry it in the car, you know, and stop at a light, I can re- you know, recite the verse, because this verse has special meaning to me, because God told me it did, because he, he jumped it off the page, so he, that was God's voice, that's another way that God speaks, is by leaping verses off the page, and and so if I own that and step into that reality of that verse, I'm going to take a step forward in my life and become more successful, more free, more whatever. Okay? One other question, Mark. How do you picture Jesus as a leader? What, what jumps at you? Um, well, he was totally in control. He knew his destiny. He was totally in control of his destiny. He knew what it was. Mm-hmm. He knew nothing toward it, you know, and Pilate said, look, I can take your life. And Jesus said, no, you can't. <laughs> he said, you have no power unless my Father gave it to you. So he was, he was totally knew who he was, totally knew his destiny. When Satan came along and said, hey, you know, I can, you know, give you, you know, jump off this mountain and whatever, you know, he just resisted all the attempts of Satan to appeal to pride or anything else because he knew what he was supposed to do because Jesus said, I only do what I hear my father speaking and see my father doing. Now, that's what a leader does. That's what you and I can do. That's what you and I need to do. And if we do, then we fulfill our destinies and we are leaders in the realm that God asks us to be leaders in. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Verkler has been our guest, president of Christian Leadership University, author of Overflow of the Spirit. Mark, I'm so glad that we could uh, join up here, and I'm uh, delighted that you had time for us. Can I give you a link where they can get this book? Oh, please. Yeah, tell Mark, give any information you want to pass on. Do it right now, please. All right. So 
So uh, we're going to run a free video series, and if you'd like to be notified as to when it starts, which will be the early part of December, just uh, go to this link, uh, cwgministries.org. That is our ministry, Communion with God Ministries, cwgministries, plural, .org, and then forward slash subscribe, forward slash subscribe, and um, that will put you on our mailing list, and we will be notifying you uh, right around the 1st of December saying, here, we're going to run the whole 12 hours of Mark teaching on Overflow of the Spirit, and we're going to give you a discount on the book if you want to buy it, and you can listen to whole, all the videos for free as we play them online. So um, you sign up, and we'll let you know when this hits, hits the market. Mark Verkler, our guest. We've got more after this here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. We'll be right back. Mark, a million thanks. I'm so glad uh, you had time for us. Terrific. All right, Pat. Thank you very much. I wish you all the very best. All right. You too. God bless. Bye-bye. Well, folks, Mark Verkler was our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Overflow of the Spirit. Uh, we stay local. Uh, Bill Vanderbush uh, is another uh, Orlandoan uh, in celebration. His book, Reckless Grace, The Gift, The Mystery, The Embrace. Bill, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, what's it like living in celebration, by the way? <laughs> It is a little strange, I gotta say. It's a, people ask me what's what's uh, celebration like if they've never seen it before, and I always say it's it's like if uh, Thomas Kincaid and the Truman Show got together and had a kid. It, it's like living in a movie set. So it is a little bit, is a little odd, yeah. But but fun, enjoyable. <laughs> it is fun. We really do enjoy it. It's a beautiful community with a lot of amazing people, and we notice that the the kind of people that it seems to attract are people who are. Uh, they're dreamers, they're idealistic, they're problem solvers. Mm. Uh, and so we're surrounded by that kind of creativity, and, and it really makes for a great environment. Bill, what is your new book about? Well, Reckless Grace really was based, uh, it came out about 10 years ago in my heart. It only came out recently in a book. But I started preaching this message about 10 years ago, and it was based upon a verse out of John chapter 14, verse 20. And, and I grew up it, it, it just soaking in the scriptures, Pat. So I had this. I had this home life uh, of missionary evangelist parents who just inundated our world with, with the Bible. And so mm. it was always kind of a part of, of my life. Matter of fact, I remember, you know, growing up and listening to Alexander Scurby uh, and Bible on cassette, you know, and, and so I just, that name is, and that, that voice is just imprinted in my heart. Well, I had memorized massive portions of Scripture just as a child, just because I heard it so often. And the Gospel of John was no exception to that. And, uh, and yet, every time I would get to John chapter 20, there's a verse in there that really, I, I just, I didn't quite get it. And it was in verse 23, where Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and he breathes on the disciples, which he only ever does twice in the whole Bible, breathes on uh, people in, in Genesis when he creates man, and then after the resurrection in this moment. And then he says this phrase, so he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven and whoever sins you retain, they are retained. And I felt the Lord draw my attention back to that one day, Pat, and I said, I just thought to myself, I don't believe this verse. I mean, I, I, I don't understand it, because I, I don't live as if the grace I give away actually matters. And we don't say in the book that, that we are the source of grace ever at all. We are just a resource. God is always the source of grace. The, the blood of Christ is the source of our salvation, the source of our grace. But we live to represent that grace. And so the book's idea is, is this. What would it look like if we actually believed that the grace we gave away actually mattered to people? If we felt the, both the right and the responsibility to put the grace of God on display in a way that would set people free to have a relationship with the Lord. And so that's essentially the, the idea of the book in a nutshell. Your first chapter is called Grace Redefined. Uh, what's that about? Yeah. Yeah, so there's so many things in in the the definition of grace, so wide to people. And so uh, we wanted to come down and, and really redefine it, not as an idea, a concept, or a philosophy, but as a person, empowering force and favor of the spirit of the resurrecting Christ upon a people. 
So we say it like this, that grace is not an idea, concept, or philosophy. It's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It's drawing our attention back to, as Hebrews puts it, looking unto Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. He is ultimately the source of grace. And and to the extent that we place our, our faith in Christ, we have an unlimited access to the unlimited resource of the grace of God. And and again, the, the, the Holy Spirit upon our lives empowers us to actually go out and do uh, the things that Jesus talked about that we would do. I would say like that uh, the grace of God or the person of Christ is that access point to the greater works that Jesus told us were possible. So grace uh, doesn't uh, give anybody a license to sin, and this is where we're getting into the next couple of chapters or so. Grace is not the idea of giving people licenses to sin. That's as often the, the, the thing. Well, you're giving people licenses to sin, Bill, and you say, well, I, I, there's not a chance that I would give a person a license to sin because I don't need to. People have been sinning just fine without a license. They don't need us to, <laughs> to do that. Grace is the empowering force of the heaven upon our lives to actually live out the righteousness of Christ. There's something about it that, that resets the standard back to that place of restoring innocence to us. And so uh, that's the first uh, first few chapters uh, right there. Now you get to the next topic. Uh, <laughs> our guest is Bill Vanderbush, uh, the book Reckless Grace. Uh, then you get to Grace Received. What's that mean? So if, if, I, if I have something offered to me, it's freely mine. It's been paid for, purchased. It's given to me, but I don't. I don't pay any attention to it. I, I ignore it. Then I will live as if it has never been given. And you know, the grace of Christ, as uh, Titus two eleven says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. Salvation has come through Christ to every single person. Second uh, Corinthians five says, "One died for all, therefore all died." Romans five says. You know, that whatever Adam's sin did to condemn us, Christ's resurrection did more to bring us salvation. And so we have this we have this blanket gospel that goes over all of humanity. But on the cross, Jesus did not take away our ability to say no. He didn't take away our choice. He doesn't arm wrestle us into receiving him. He makes it available to every single person. And and that's the encouragement of the chapters is recognize the grace that has been extended to you, and then lay hold of it by faith. And so we really talk about the practice uh, of what that even looks like. It, it doesn't come through, just kind of give a nugget here for that, uh, it doesn't come through striving. Nothing we get from God comes through striving. It comes through surrender, surrendering our, our, ourselves to, to uh, our, our own efforts, our own ego, our own pride, our own ambition surrendering to let the work of Christ be preeminent in our lives. Now, we've gone from grace redefined to grace received. Now, Bill, explain to us grace released. So now, if we, when we, we realize what we have access to, what's been freely given to us, as Jesus said, freely you've received, now freely give. Now, and this is the part that I think we have the hardest time with. I mean, maybe not. Maybe the, maybe the hardest person to forgive is ourselves, really. But giving grace away is the mandate of Christ in John 20, 23. The idea is, is give it away. Go let people know what I've done. And let people know uh, how loved, how forgiven they are, what the cross accomplished. And, you know, in John 17, Jesus prayed. He said, Father, the glory you've given me, I give to them, that they may be one. So the result of the glory of God upon the body of Christ comes into a revelation of radical unity. He says that they may be one, just as we are, I and you, you and me, and I and them, perfected in unity. And this is the key phrase here, that the world may know that you sent me and love them just like you love me. So the idea here is the body of Christ has the responsibility to share the gospel with the world. Now that goes without saying, but what is that gospel? Well, the gospel is what Christ has done. And it's not so much uh, uh, encouraging, uh, you know, telling people what well, you, you, you've got to do something to be saved. It's, it's you simply receive what Christ has done. It's his work that has actually saved us. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says, by his doing we are in Christ. 
And so when I give that grace away, when I reflect that grace, then what I'm letting people know is they are loved by the Father. Jesus tells us that the Father himself loves you. And so when I reflect that, I put that on display, then, then if, if that message gets across, then people aren't sitting there wallowing in their sin, feeling like they're just completely worthless. They suddenly become aware that, that wow, I was first loved by him. Uh, that, that, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He didn't wait till I got my act together. He actually loved me while I was still in my mess at my darkest moment. And now my life is going to be lived in response to that. We love him because he first loved us. So it's really giving people a revelation of the depth of the love of God and then inviting them to respond uh, with, that, with that response of love, not just toward God, but toward everybody around us, even the people that don't agree with us. Because Jesus told us, he said, love your enemies. And that's a huge, huge mandate. And I think it's also the hardest word of Christ to pervert. My guest is Bill Vanderbush of Celebration Florida. The book, Reckless Grace. Bill, we've arrived at uh, this topic. It's simply the grace of God. Uh, I'm eager to hear this. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's not our grace that we're giving away. It's, it's kind of like spending somebody else's bank account. And so when I, when I have no sense of being able to, like, uh, uh, if I can't forgive, then I got to look at what Christ can do and what he has done and then tap into that. It, it, it's, if, if grace is a work of my flesh, then every time I release it, it will build my own pride. And grace is not a means by which we build our pride or our ego. Grace is, is a, 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 us coming into a revelation of what God and Christ has done for us, and then turning around and giving that away to other people. It, you know, it's kind of like uh, you, you, you just got a billion dollars just dumped into your bank account, but the responsibility is to give it away to every person who has need, who, who's willing to receive it. And, and, you know, what would you do? You would find people with need. You would just give it away as quickly as possible to every person you could find. Some people would receive it. Some people would be wary. Some people would push it away and say, I don't need that. I'm, I'm going I'm to live on my own. I don't need what you're giving me. They want to work for themselves. I remember reading a book years ago by ministers said I went, went uh, uh, swimming with some friends and had no, uh, I, he said, I had no ability to swim. And I went the, with these friends, and they couldn't swim either. So we're just kind of waiting. Mm. And there was one strong swimmer in the group. And he goes, and I, I I noticed one of our guys went out a little bit too deep, and he starts sinking, and he's, he's drowning. And he said, we appealed to the strong swimmer, go out and save him. And he said that the man stood there. He would not move. And he said, and finally, when the guy out there gets to the end of his strength and he slips underneath of the water, he said, in that moment, that strong swimmer lunges out into the water, and he grabs the man, lifts him up out of the, uh, above the surface of the water, pulls him to safety, revives him, and saves his life. And the minister said, I, I was so angry with this, our, our strong swimmer. And I said, why didn't you go out and save him right away? And he said, because he was still fighting his own strength, was trying to save himself in his own strength. If I had gone out there, he'd have pulled us both down, and we would have both been lost. He says, it's not until he comes to the end of his own ability that he can be saved. And he said, I realized at that moment there was something about that. God was teaching me to come to the end of my own ability and give up my ability to save myself. You know, when we give the grace of God away, Pat, we are basically just proclaiming, declaring what Christ has done to those who need it. They're, they've lost their own ability to save themselves. Powerful. Now, uh, I want to move into this second part, and you lead off with the problem with grace. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, grace is, grace is um, we want, our ego wants, so badly to to contribute to our salvation, we want to somehow uh, we want to somehow impress God, and so the idea here is understanding what righteousness really is. Righteousness is not the ideas that we come up with to try to somehow impress God. Righteousness is an identity that's given to us on the cross. The Bible says, "He who speaking of Christ, he who knew no sin." became sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. So the idea here is there's a divine exchange program. It's that God looks at us, 
and he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. And when I, when I realized then that righteousness is an identity, not a reward for my, my personal goodness, then I, I begin to realize I can't take credit for any of this stuff. At the same time, it changes the way that I see everybody else around me. Because I realize that I can't, I can't stand in a place of judgment of somebody else's righteousness when that righteousness is purely a gift of God. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we don't live up to that. Sometimes we don't hold that standard in our lives. Does that make us any less righteous? Well, in the eyes of man, perhaps. But the Bible says when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And that faithfulness is that that righteousness never stops being our identity. You know, he, he doesn't look at us to, to try to somehow, uh, uh, you know, keep up our end of the deal. In the Old Covenant, you know, you kept up your end, God keeps up his end. The minute you drop your end, we got to make a new covenant all over again. But the New Covenant is a different thing altogether. The covenant between the Father and the Son, and so it's, it's almost like God keeps his end up, and, and he also keeps your end up, but he treats you as if you kept your end up. And that's the beauty of this thing of the new covenant is we are living in this waterfall, this deluge of the grace of God. Or the, one of the ways I say it is, is like this, and maybe if, if this just will stick with people in, in, in their hearts, something to meditate on throughout the day, that if a blood of the blood of a goat in the old covenant could cover the sins of a nation for an entire year, what do we believe that the blood of the Lamb of God actually did? Fascinating. Well, folks, we got to take a break. We'll be right back on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. More with Bill Vanderbush and his new book, Reckless Grace. And of course, you're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. And I'll be right back. Bill Vanderbush has written the book, Reckless Grace. And Bill, we've arrived at topic number six, and you call it Count the Cost of Grace. Uh, Why is that important? You know, the idea of counting the cost is is really, I mean, it's a term that I think we've used in in the body of Christ for years. My dad was a missionary evangelist, and uh, uh, everybody in his family went a completely different direction. This was kind of a family business and a farm. And my dad really felt this sense of, of being called to, uh, to to share the gospel, you know, with the, with the world, and passed away uh, many years ago at the age of eighty three. So he, he lived in, during a time where, you know, going to third world countries could really cost your life. I mean, on a level that's even more risky than you know I think it is today. And and so his family felt like it was a foolish decision, and he couldn't explain it. He was leaving behind uh, financial security. He was leaving behind uh, solid relationships. And so for him to say yes to Jesus was costly. And that's the deal with saying yes to Jesus. It's, you know, Jesus says, uh, he comes along to Peter and, and the disciples, and he, he says, follow me. And these guys leave everything to follow Jesus. But, you know, let's say, Pat, you and I are, are uh, suddenly we're following Jesus. We're part of that 12. I think I would probably look at you one day and go, you see what he just did? He just raised somebody from the dead. He just opened blind eyes. He just made a lame person walk. Well, that's great for them, but can he solve the problem that you and I have, which 2,000 years ago in Israel would have been religious oppression from uh, the system of, of religion in that day. It was just horrifically oppressive to people, and it was also corrupt because it was in, in kind of cahoots with the political system of the day, which is the Romans. And so you might, you and I might have looked and said, you know, it's great that he can heal people and raise the dead, but what about this, this system? What about this governmental system? And then we would have heard him talk about the kingdom of God. And you might have said, well, he's talking about the kingdom all the time. That means that he's got to set up some, some sort of kingdom here on earth here. I mean, that's, and, and, and that means that somebody's got to sit on his right and on his left, and there's 12 of us, and there's only one right and one left. Mm. So then who would be the greatest? And so you can kind of logically see how watching what Jesus was doing and blowing people's minds and drawing massive crowds and and doing miracles and all this stuff would have caused these people to build up expectations based upon the biggest problem of their day. But the problem is, is that expectation that they had became a roadblock to the destiny that God ultimately had for them. 
they were trying to think of security and certainty. And Jesus essentially goes, you know, this is not the way it's going to come about. And the way he reveals that to them is he, he dies on the cross. And now in John chapter 20 and verse 19, right before the key verse of the book, you see what I call the most depressing prayer meeting in history, because the remaining disciples, I mean, you know, uh, Peter, he's, he's nowhere to be found because he's completely denied even knowing Jesus, and that's the leader of the group, you know, uh, supposedly. And then uh, Judas, the treasurer, has gone out and hung himself. So the leader's gone, the treasurer's committed suicide, there's 10 guys left, and they're hanging out together in this room, and it's a locked room, and they're afraid that the same people that killed Jesus are now coming after them. All of those expectations are now gone and shattered. The, the concept of a kingdom is completely destroyed in their mind because what they had built up was completely different than what he has in mind. When he shows back up again, he shows up to a group of guys who once again counted the cost, and that is that they were completely stripped bare of everything except a surrendered yes to his voice to go forward. And it's on the basis of that just simple surrendered yes to whatever he asks to do without any sense of certainty or security that they move forward and the Bible says they turn the world upside down. And so I think that's the thing is is to really receive the grace of Christ. There's a cost involved. And that means that I, I realize that grace is going to empower me to perhaps invade an impossible situation, to, to go and share the gospel with people that are completely different than me, to to do something that I maybe have never felt that I could ever do in my own strength. That grace will empower me, but there will be a cost to it. And and it will be the one thing that I have to give. The one thing we have to give to God is the one thing he's given to us, and that is our life. Our life, our lives laid down for the cause of the gospel. Bill Vanderbush, the book Reckless Grace. Bill, this seventh topic is interesting to me. It's called Pillars of Grace. Uh, I want you to expand on that. Yeah, I can't go into all of them, but there's there's some key there's some key. Uh, I, I would say we we created a bit of a formula, and, and there's no there's no formula to this, by the way, really. I mean, but there are people that like lists, and so uh, you know they like step one, step two, step three. But the way I like to say it is like this: God is more interested in presence than He is in principle. In other words, I, I won't ever replace. Uh, the hearing of the voice of God with just a simple formulaic principle. So what we've done is we've created a, we have created a bit of a formula for people that do like lists, but it's circular because it's not that you get to the end and you can check it off and never revisit it again. It's actually meant to be a lifestyle. So it's the, the entire concept is, you know, the idea of believing in the grace of Christ. I believe that what Christ did was sufficient for me. Do I believe that it is it is uh, uh, available for me to receive it by faith, to release it, give it away, and then to repeat that? And really, that that is the the basis of the formula, I guess we would say. The concept of these pillars of grace is is that you don't get to the end of this journey and never do it again. It becomes a lifestyle. This is why Jesus said, when Peter asked him a question in Matthew eighteen, "How many times do I forgive my brother?" Jesus said 70 times 7. Well, what is he saying? He's saying you don't ever stop. It, this, is a, this is a lifestyle, and I think this is one of the most important lifestyles we can ever learn because forgiveness frees the forgiver. And the more that I give that grace of God away, the more I begin to live under that deluge, that waterfall of the grace that God is releasing over my life. And learning to do that is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing flowing river. And that's that's kind of the basis of the uh, pillars. Now, uh, we move to uh, the next issue on grace. It's called Grace in Action, Bill, and I uh, I need you to expand. Yeah. yeah, so grace is not a passive thing. It's not something we just think about. It's something that involves our doing. But again, it's not our doing that saves us. We don't do to be saved. We do because we have been saved. And so that's really what it is. It's, it's not making grace something that you just think about. It's making grace something that you physically, intentionally, purposely do. You put action to it. And, and without that action, uh, people don't really see the evidence of that grace in our lives. Now, we've got 
got another topic I want you to cover, simply called Opportunities for Grace. What's happening here? Yeah, so this is really where we talk about some of the some of the crazier moments that we've had, uh, you know, sharing the gospel with people where the grace, the grace of God shows up and supernaturally melts a heart. So it's not about us arguing people into faith in Christ. It's simply about releasing the grace of God and then letting the Holy Spirit begin to do the work. And, and, and there really is something about, you know, looking at a person and seeing them as, as forgiven by God, or let's say it like this, seeing Christ in them before they even see him in themselves. You know, our perspective of somebody doesn't save them, but it definitely will change the way that we treat them. Paul said in Colossians 3, he says, he says this crazy phrase, he says, Christ is all and in all. And he actually, prior to that, lists a, a number of groups of people that nobody would believe would ever come to Christ. And he mentioned things like barbarians and Scythians, which were the most hated vile people groups of his day. Right after that phrase, he, he says, Christ is all and in all. And, and what he's revealing is his own perspective. He's saying, this is, what, this is what I see. I am determined that I am going to look at a person, and I'm not going to know them, like he said in 2 Corinthians 5, according to the flesh. I am actually going to know them by the Spirit. I'm going to find out what God has always thought about that person from before the foundation of the world, and I'm going to agree with that. That's what God told Jeremiah. He said, I knew you before I formed you. So really the question is, what did God know? And once we come to a realization of what God believed about us from before the foundation of the world, then we just have to let go of all the lies that we believe about ourselves and about other people and agree with what God believes. My guest has been Bill Vanderbush, author of Reckless Grace. We've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Bill, that was terrific. Um, and, and we got everything in except the embrace of grace, but we'll let people figure that out on their own. Now, hopefully there will be a, enough of a, uh, a hook in there where they want to uh, take the journey through the book. Well, Bill, a million thanks. It was it was a terrific half hour, and I'm so glad that we got to visit with each other. Thanks, Pat. I appreciate it, and I look forward to catching up in person one of these days. Thank you, and have a safe journey home. All right. Take care. All set there, Pat, when you are. Well, folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Mark Verkler was our guest in the first segment talking about his book, Overflow of the Spirit. And then Bill Vanderbush, who lives in celebration. He came along, and uh, we got to talk about his book, Reckless Grace. Uh, Just a reminder, folks, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and uh, we need your help. You can go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just say, uh, good idea, Uh, I like it. I'm in. I want to do this. And if you're interested in season tickets someday, uh, you can just uh, get your name and date in there, and that's going to be important someday. So uh, that's, that's the deal. Now, we're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And uh, stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Uh, your life will be better for it. So long, and uh, we'll see you next weekend.